Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Well, it's been quite a week and here at Bayside Chapel already. If you were here for the family gathering uh, yesterday, I think you know what I mean. And Diane and I want to say a big thank you to everybody who had a, a part of that. Uh, whether you were part of the program or you brought food or you just attended, uh, it, it was really just a perfect celebration in my mind. It was funny, but it was also worshipful as we together were able to acknowledge what God has done these last 12 years together here at Bayside Chapel. So thank you to everybody who, who made that happen. And today's another big day. This is Baton Pass Sunday, and I've got my pastor Ken Sachs on. And we have a literal baton that we're going to pass at the end of the service as, uh, as uh, my tenure here as senior pastor ends and Ken's tenure as lead pastor begins as of midnight tonight. But uh, right now, I want to take us into God's Word. And as I said in the first service, uh, this is my last chance to give Ken unsolicited advice because after this, he becomes my boss. Uh, on Tuesday, I begin my new part-time job as teaching pastor here at Bayside. Uh, and so I'll still be around. I'll have a little bit of a... Going to kind of lay low for a little while so that Ken can, you know, kind of get established as the lead pastor, uh, but he's already got me on the preaching schedule for February, so I guess I'm not going to be out of the way too long. But today I want to take us into uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, and this is going to be kind of in the form of a charge to Ken as our incoming pastor, but I want you all to listen in because I want you to hear what I'm charging Ken with. And I want you to protect him in the responsibilities that, that uh, I'm kind of laying on him today from God's Word. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the little booklet by Charles E. Hummel. The title is The Tyranny of the Urgent. And the subtitle of the booklet is, Is There Really Enough Time to Do All That God Requires? And, and think about that. Is there really enough time to do all that God requires? Hummel's answer to that question is yes. There is enough time to do all that God requires. The problem comes in when we try to do what everybody else wants us to do. And in fact, uh, that was why Jesus was able to say in John 17, 4, I have completed everything the Father has given me to do. It's because Jesus knew how to distinguish what was important from that which was merely urgent. 
And so Hummel makes this distinction. He says, urgent tasks are tyrants. They demand that we give them our immediate attention. And so as pastors, for instance, we bounce from phone call to counseling session to meeting to answering texts and emails in between. As someone once put it to Hummel, your, your problem is, your greatest danger is letting the urgent things crowd out the important. And if we allow that to happen, we'll end up spending our time driven along by the demands that other people make of us, and not enough time is left to devote ourselves to the most important aspects, the God-given aspects of our work. And if you as a preacher, Ken, are ruled by the tyranny of the urgent, the result will be the neglect of arguably what is your most important job of all, and the result will be an undernourished flock. That's not to say you shouldn't spend your time counseling, members of the congregation, and it's not to say that you can't help plan that next big event or attend that committee meeting, but rather you must not allow urgent things to distract you from the most important things. It's a matter of priorities. What comes first? You may make a counselee happy by dropping everything to see him, but it shouldn't be at the expense of feeding the whole flock a sermon that's just half-baked on Sunday morning. People may applaud your execution of that next big event, but how did last week's sermon help them in their walk with God? You can impress a lot of people uh, by how busy you are, but what they need most of all is someone who will show them clearly from God's Word how to live an authentic Christian life. And if you're feeling yourself getting a little defensive, saying those other things are important too, well, Ask yourself why in Acts 6, the apostles delegated the whole food distribution program to deacons so that they could spend their time on two basic responsibilities, the ministry of the word and prayer. Or why Jesus told Peter in John 21, not go to more meetings, but feed my sheep. Or why Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Or Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. There are many things that will vie for your time and energy and attention as a pastor, but they're not all important. Some are urgent, but not important. Other things are important, but not the most important. And what I'm advocating is that you not allow yourself to be distracted from what is most important. I'm urging you to make a priority in your schedule of the ministry of the Word. The most important work you will do all week is getting ready to feed this flock on Sunday morning. And that's why I'm taking you to 2 Timothy 2.15. I, I said way back in the, uh, in the fall when we were doing our series in 2 Timothy, Pass the Baton, that uh, when I preached over this verse, it was in the context of a larger passage. I said, but I'm coming back to this verse on Pass the Baton Sunday because it's packed with important uh, information that a pastor needs. And there are four compelling reasons here to view your sermon preparation as the most important work of the week. In fact, I found this verse so fundamental in my own thinking that it became the foundation of my entire doctoral project. 2 Timothy 2.15, where Paul says to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, why should sermon preparation be regarded as your most important work of the week? Well, the first reason is that it's work worthy of your best effort. It's work worthy of your best effort. 
Notice what Paul says here in verse 15. Do your best. Do your best to present yourself to God as one who rightly divides the word of truth. That word, do your best, in Greek is the word spudason. It means to do something with intense effort and motivation, to work hard at it, to give it your, your all. Now, Paul doesn't use this word very often. In fact, he only uses it six times in all of his letters, including this reference. But in places where he uses it, he says things like Ephesians 4, verse 3, do your best to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's pretty critically important to the life of the church. Paul says, do your best to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he talks about how he himself did his best to see the Thessalonians face to face. Twice in 2 Timothy and once in Titus, he urges his young associates, do your best to come to me. And so Paul doesn't use the word very often, but when he does, he's urging his readers to make a priority of something. He's using it to call upon his readers to give something their best effort. He's saying to them, what I'm asking you to do here deserves you give it your all. And so here he says, do your best to present yourself to God as a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth. I wonder how many pastors can say they gave the last sermon they preached their best effort. Your calendar will probably be the best measure of that. As you look at your calendar from week, the week past, did you squeeze your sermon preparation in around all your other appointments and tasks of the week, or were the other tasks made to fit around your sermon preparation? Did you get to the sermon after you got everything else done that was crying out for your attention, maybe as late as Saturday night or Sunday morning, or was the sermon done with plenty of time to let it ruminate in your soul before you preached it? Did you treat other tasks as important so that suddenly the, getting the sermon done felt urgent? Or did you give priority to the ministry of the Word and manage the other demands of the week to keep them from crowding out your time studying the Word and praying over your message? An old preacher named George Buttrick once said, there is no excuse for stepping into the pulpit unprepared. If there are 200 people in the congregation, it would take you almost 70 hours to have a 20-minute visit with each one. No one has a right to waste that much time. Now here at Bayside, it would be more like you know, 30 minutes and 300 people at a time twice over on a Sunday morning. That'd be over 150 hours twice over, 300 hours no one has a right to waste that much time. So do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Why should we view our sermon preparation as the most important work of the week? First of all, because it's work worthy of our best effort. Secondly, it's work for which you will be held accountable. It's work for which you will be held accountable. The verse goes on to say, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. These next two phrases in verse 15 both speak to the same realization, and that is that we will be accountable to God for how we handle his word. As James puts it in his epistle, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. But on the flip side, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, the elders who direct the affairs of the church are, well, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So the ministry of preaching and teaching is both high risk and high reward. 
Do it poorly and you will be judged. Do it well and you'll be worthy of double honor. And here in 2 Timothy 2 verse 15, Paul is warning Timothy to avoid the foolish controversies. In the larger context of the chapter, he's saying, don't mess with those things that people are talking about these days. Don't get involved in foolish controversies about genealogies and speculation about things. People may want you to engage in foolish quarrels. They may want you to to engage in, in, in speculation and conspiracy theories and, and, and you know, speculating about Bible prophecy and all kinds of things. They may reward you handsomely and give their approval, even compensate you well for giving them what they want to hear, but your accountability is to the Lord, not to them. Do your best, Paul says, to present yourself to God as one approved. That word approved is a word... Uh, dokimon, that means genuine. It pertains to, how, uh, to uh, that which is approved by testing. And Paul was well aware that all our work as ministers of the gospel is subject to testing. He talks in 1 Corinthians 3 about how the fire will test the quality of each one's work. Whether you build with wood, hay, and straw, well, that'll get burned up. If you build with gold, silver, and precious stones, that will endure, that will be approved by testing. So Paul says, do your best to present yourself to God as one so approved, who's been tested and found approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. The word worker there is an interesting one, ergotain. It would be translated laborer or workman. You know, pastors like to think of themselves as professionals. Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. Be a workman, be a laborer. As a son of a hard-working blue-collar guy, I, I like the reminder that the work of handling God's word needs to be approached the way a diligent working man, a workman, gets up and goes about his job each day. My dad took great pride in not being a loafer and giving his boss an honest day's work and have nothing to be ashamed of at the end of the week. And Paul is saying here, so preacher, get up and go to work. Put in the time. Don't loaf. Don't make the boss reprimand you for shoddy work or for goofing off on the job. You want to be a diligent worker who has no need before the Lord to be ashamed. That word ashamed there means no reason for feeling disgrace. I once had a student who apparently was worried about what I thought about his preaching. Uh, Almost, well, it was unhealthy (laughs) because there were two occasions when I was present and he passed out while I was, I was there. One happened in a worship service and the other happened in a seminary classroom where he was preaching and I was evaluating him for a grade. And he was just so worried I wouldn't approve. He got so nervous he'd, he'd pass out. He got over it. In fact, he became a very proficient preacher. He even learned how to preach in Italian, was a missionary in Italy for many years, and now he's the, the director of the International Baptist Convention, overseeing churches all around the world. So God's done some good things in Tim's life. But back then, he was, he was worried about whether I would approve his preaching. I sometimes wondered what it would be like to stand in the pulpit some Sunday and unexpectedly find some of the men in the audience who taught me to preach, people like Lloyd Perry and Warren Wearsby and Bruce Strickland. Oh, they were sticklers for getting it right. And I'd undoubtedly nervous to see them out there, and, and I'd wonder, would they approve 
what I have preached. Uh, now, none of them are likely to drop in on Sunday morning because they're all with the Lord now, but, <laughs> but I want to be sure that the Lord will approve because he's always present. And that's what Paul is urging Timothy. Make sure that you, when you handle the word of God, are a worker who has no need to be ashamed. And if I'm going to be that, it requires that I view my sermon preparation as the most important work of the week. So why should we view sermon preparation as the most important work of the week? Firstly, it's work that's worthy of your best effort. Secondly, it's work for which you'll be held accountable. Thirdly, it's work that must be done the right way. You know, some work is so inconsequential, it doesn't really matter how it gets done as long as it gets done. I think of loading the dishwasher like that. And some of you wives are out there like, oh no, oh no, there's a right way to do this. And my husband doesn't do it right. Look, I'm telling you, if he loads the dishwasher and the dishes come out clean, it's all good. Leave him alone, because then he'll maybe do it again. You know, Diane's good about that. We do it differently. But it comes out right in the end, and, you know, it's kind of inconsequential how it gets done as long as it gets done. But other work is of such importance that there is a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. For example, between 2018 and 2020, I had four heart procedures, two stents, two ablations, and I am thankful to have two highly skilled cardiologists who knew how to do those procedures the right way. I call them my plumber and my electrician. And uh, boy, you know, the outcome would have been very different if I'd had doctors who thought they could just kind of make it up as they went along, right? There's a right way and a wrong way to go about those procedures. And what I'm saying is that sermon preparation, handling God's word, should be treated much more like heart surgery than like loading the dishwasher. You need to be sure to do it the right way. Paul says here, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And if there's a right way to handle the word of truth, that means there's also a wrong way to handle the word of truth. I think it's safe to say that if something is important enough to be done the right way, and in fact, you'll be held accountable for doing it the right way, that one should probably make that work, in this case, sermon preparation, a high priority. Rightly handling the word of truth. That word rightly handling is the word orthotumunta in Greek. It's a, it's a word that's rarely used anywhere in the Greek language, but as best we can tell, it means to guide along a straight path, literally to cut a straight road. Hence, to give accurate instruction, to teach correctly, to expound rightly. And Ken, you and I have had conversations about our seminary training and gratitude for the school I went to, and I know the school you go to as well, emphasizes the same thing, and that's expositional preaching. That the starting point is always the text, not some topic I want to talk about. What, what does the text say? And, and we were trained to bend our thoughts to the text rather than bending the text to our thoughts. And for that, we got training in original languages, Greek and Hebrew. We, we were trained in hermeneutics, given tools to discover the meaning of the, the original writer as he wrote to his original readers. And 
and we did courses in biblical studies to help us understand the meaning of texts in their larger contexts. We had homiletics teachers who showed us how to derive sermons that came straight out of those texts and, and showed relevance for the lives of our listeners. I'm grateful that I had professors like Dr. Walter Kaiser who would frequently say, make sure that as you preach, your listeners can keep one finger on the text. I'm grateful to have had a pastor, Bruce Strickland, who would say frequently from the pulpit, don't believe anything you hear from this pulpit unless you can see it in the Word of God. And that's what I've tried to instill in you, Ken, and I know that you have grabbed onto that conviction passionately. Because a lot of sermons get preached these days that make only a passing reference to the Scripture or that misuse Scriptures in ways that stray far from the original meaning and intent. And so people these days often in churches are getting rabbit trails and the opinions of preachers instead of straight talk from God's Word. And that isn't right. That's malpractice. In an essay that he wrote by the title Sinsick, theologian Stanley Hauervas uh, talks about, he kind of compares the training of pastors with the training of doctors. And he says, you know, when, when a person goes to medical school, you expect them to get a certain body of knowledge and training because you want them to practice medicine the right way. And so if a medical student said to the, the school faculty, you know what, I don't think I'm going to take anatomy this year. I'm, I'm more into relating to my patients. I want to focus on people. The school would say, who do you think you are? You're going to take anatomy. You're going to learn how to do this the right way. And he says, now what that shows is that people believe incompetent physicians can hurt them. Therefore, people expect medical schools to hold their students responsible for the kind of training necessary to be competent physicians. On the other hand, few people believe incompetent ministers can damage their salvation. But the church has said for millennia that bad teaching is more deadly than bad surgery. And he says that, the, you know, the need for formal structures in medicine, you know, for hierarchy and accountability and medical boards and, and oversight, all of that is important because we want our doctors to be competent. He says we need to be as discerning in whom we trust with the care of our souls as with the care of our bodies. Now, Ken, I know that you have given yourself over to that kind of training. And that's why I have been so enthusiastic in my recommendation of you to this congregation for you to be my successor. Because what the church needs more than ever is pastors and teachers who will take seriously their calling to rightly handle the word of truth. So I'm urging you to view your sermon preparation as the most important work of your week. Why? It's work worthy of your best effort. It's work for which you will be held accountable. It's work that must be done the right way. And fourthly and finally, it's work that involves handling a precious commodity. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You know, the more valuable the material with which you work, the more seriously you must take your job. Years ago, when I was a little kid, one of my Christmas presents was this machine where you would take plastic, green plastic pellets and pour them into this little oven, and then you'd plug it in, and it would heat up 
until the plastic became molten. It's amazing that baby boomers survived childhood. They gave us toys like this. But the idea was that when the, the green plastic became molten, you'd push this plunger and it would push all that molten plastic into molds that would make toy soldiers and jeeps and tanks. You know, and you could make your whole army out of these green plastic pellets. The problem was that I would get a little impatient, you know, waiting for that stuff to get really liquefied. And I would push the plunger too early, and so the plastic would get globby, and it would go into the mold, and it would only go so far, and then it would stop. So when you open the mold, you'd get soldiers that had no heads and no arms and, and jeeps that were only half there and tanks without turrets. And, but it was no big deal because all you had to do was crumble up the plastic again, put it back in the oven, and make sure that this time it really did become liquefied before you plunged it. Inconsequential, you know, it didn't, it didn't really matter because the material with which I worked was so, so cheap, so inexpensive. Now, diamond cutting, on the other hand, is a different proposition, right? The practice of, of shaping a diamond from a rough stone into a faceted gem. Well, cutting diamonds requires specialized knowledge and tools and equipment and techniques that are very difficult. Mess up with plastic pellets, it's no big deal. But mess up, mishandle a diamond, and it can be very, very costly. And so Paul is saying here, recognize what you're handling here. Rightly handle the word of truth. What is this precious commodity that Paul calls the word of truth? Well, in at least two places, he equates it with the gospel itself. In Ephesians 1, he says, you've heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Or in Colossians 1, he says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. I guess what you could say is that all good preaching should be gospel preaching. Not that every sermon will have a gospel presentation tacked on the end with an invitation to trust Christ for salvation, although there should be plenty of those as well. But as you and I have talked, Ken, you know, Brian Chappell in his book, Christ-Centered Preaching, talks about how every passage of Scripture addresses some aspect of our fallen condition as human beings. He calls that the fallen condition focus. If you can figure out the fallen condition focus of any passage of Scripture, you won't have any, any difficult time showing the relevance of that passage for our lives because it will speak to who we are as fallen people. But, he says, the point is that every sermon should then speak to the hope that is ours in Christ to address that aspect of our fallen condition. So if the word of truth has specific reference to the gospel, rightly dividing the word of truth, cutting a straight path through the word of truth is going to mean that our preaching straightforwardly points people to Christ. There's also a reason to believe that Paul's understanding of the word of truth encompasses not just the gospel narrowly defined, but the entirety of Scripture, as Paul will go on to say in the next chapter, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And if God's word is good for all of that, showing you the way to go, warning you when you've gotten off track, helping you get back on track, and then showing you how to stay on track, 
No wonder Paul says in the next chapter after that, 2 Timothy 4, I charge you, preach the word. Always remember, Ken, that you work with diamonds, not with plastic pellets. Give careful attention. Make a priority of preparing your sermons and lessons because by our calling as ministers of the gospel, the most precious of commodities has been committed to our hands, the word of truth. As John Stott once put it, the most important gift in the church today, measured by those, what, what builds up the church, he says the most important gift in the church today is teaching. Nothing builds up the church like truth, and we desperately need more Christian teachers all over the world who do that. So Ken, there you have it. I hope that I've made my case for why you as a pastor, whose principal job is to preach the word, need to be on your guard. Because now that you're going to be the head guy around here, you're going to find that lots of people will vie to get your ear for just an hour or two. And, and that's not to say that you need to isolate yourself or become unavailable to your flock, but it is to say you must guard your time or else you'll end up being distracted by so many urgent things that you'll be taken away from the most important work of the week, your preparation to feed this flock by faithfully teaching and preaching the Word of God. It's work worthy of your best effort. It's work for which you will be held accountable. It's work that must be done the right way, and it's work that involves handling a precious commodity. But even at that, there would be some who will argue that it's really just not worth the time and effort that preachers give to their sermons, that surely pastors could give their time to things that are more important or or more profitable. Years ago, there was a letter that was published in the British Weekly that was quite provocative at the time. It said, Dear Sir, it seems ministers feel their sermons are very important and spend a great deal of time preparing them. I've been attending church quite regularly for 30 years, and I've probably heard 3,000 sermons. To my consternation, I discovered I cannot remember a single sermon. I wonder if a minister's time might be more profitably spent on something else. Well, that uh, sparked a flurry of letters back and forth on this topic, and it was all kind of ended by another letter that finally came in that said, Dear Sir, I've been married for 30 years. During that time, I've eaten 32,850 meals, mostly my wife's cooking. Suddenly, I've discovered I cannot remember the menu of a single meal. And yet, I have the distinct impression that without them, I would have starved to death long ago. People of Bayside, make sure to respect and appreciate it when Pastor Ken makes a priority of preparing to feed you on Sunday morning. And Ken, don't ever apologize for the time and effort you put into sermon preparation, but rather do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, Ken, if you are willing and ready to accept that responsibility, I'm going to invite you and your family to come and join me here in the front. And I'm going to invite the elders of Bayside, the staff of Bayside, and any members of the search committee who are present to come and join me as we pray for Ken.
And as they're all coming, I want to say a special thank you to the search committee in particular, who put in a lot of good, solid work in, in vetting Ken and helping us discern whether he was, in fact, God's man for this moment. And so I want to thank Sam Doncaster and Joe Guyverson and John McGinnis and uh, Sue Ellen Boyer and Sarah Boast uh, for having served us. And I think we should give them a round of applause for the work they did. I don't know anybody who's been more thoroughly vetted for a position like this. Uh, Ken has had basically a 10-year tryout, you know? So uh, we are just so grateful for, uh, for uh, the years that you've already invested in Bayside and for the ways that you've proven yourself. And Ken, I'm going to ask you, are you ready? We're turning back. All right. Yeah, all right. It's yours. It's uh, your leg of the race to run now, and we're all going to be praying for you and cheering you on along the way. And now we're going to ask uh, one of our elders who served on the search committee, uh, Joe Guyverson, to lead us in prayer for Ken and his family as they assume this responsibility. Everybody else just kind of crowd around and lay your hands on and good prayer. Thank you, Pastor Dave. Join me in a prayer blessing over Ken and his family. Heavenly Father, we come before you with grateful hearts as we welcome Pastor Ken into his new role as lead pastor of your church and of the people of Bayside Chapel. You knew the plan you had for Pastor Ken and the church when you led him and his family to Bayside in 2011. A little more than a year ago, the Pastor Search Committee began the awesome privilege and responsibility to seek your appointment for a new lead pastor. Through the prayers and fasting of the search committee, and along with the many prayers of the people of Bayside seeking your will in this matter, you heard us and honored our request with this blessing. We are grateful for your clear direction, and we offer all our praise and thankfulness to you. We stand in all of your perfect timing and provision as Pastor Ken begins his new role as lead pastor. And we thank you for all the pastors here at Bayside, especially Pastor Dave, who have come alongside Ken over the past years and have supported him in his walk with Christ, growing along the way for your purposes here today. Grant Pastor Ken with wisdom and discernment as he shepherds your flock. Fill him with compassion, love, and a deep understanding of your word. May he be a source of encouragement, support, and inspiration to each and every member of our church family. Grant him strength, courage, and perseverance as he leads us in worship and teaches us your words and your ways. Help Pastor Ken to faithfully proclaim your truth and guide us in your spiritual journey. Surround our pastor with a supportive church and community that uplifts him and encourages him and prays for him and his family often. Continue to equip Pastor Ken with the necessary skills that preach your word with clarity. Thank you for the calling you have, passed, you have placed on Pastor Ken's life. <clears throat> Father, we commit our pastor's ministry and his leadership into your hands, trusting that you will empower and equip him for every task that lies ahead. Bless his wife, Laura, and their children, Olivia and Elizabeth, as they enter into this calling together supporting and helping Ken, standing alongside him, sharing the blessings 
and yes, maybe even some trials that they may face in their service to you. Now, Lord, grant the Carlson family, and especially Pastor Ken, the strength and endurance to shepherd your flock. In Jesus' name, we pray, and everyone said, amen.